everyone. Hope everyone is doing all right this morning. Today we're going to be going through how do we approach uh, the scripture, the text, as it relates to eschatology. Because uh, as we dive in, uh, we're not going to hit uh, the big theological topics yet because we have to understand how are we going to see the scripture, how are we going to see the story as it plays out in the scripture, and then how does that relate to the way that we view history and the way that we view uh, the end times or eschatology. So uh, that is our game plan for today. We're going to be hitting three uh, big topics, the Bible, how do we approach the Bible, and then covenant, how does covenant play a role in the way that we look at the Bible, and then uh, prophecy, how do we approach prophecy, and how do we see uh, it as being fulfilled um, and how uh, our opponents may view that uh, differently. So before we get started, let me go before our, our Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would be with us as we approach your text, your word, uh, that you have given us so freely that we might uh, know you better and understand you better, uh, that we might love you better as we seek to obey your commands and the laws that you give us. Uh, I pray that uh, as we approach the text today that we would be faithful uh, that we would not uh, be seeking to read our own thoughts uh, into it, but that we would be seeking to uh, to read out uh, the, the meaning that you have given to us and the, the hope that you have given us that is found uh, all throughout the text of Scripture. Uh, we are so thankful for that hope. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. All right. Well, as we start today, I want to give us this to frame our discussion we do not adopt a view of history in the end times just because of what we see going on in history right now. Now, what do I mean by that? Whenever I was, uh, I, I was on uh, social media at times, I will go into different um, Christian groups or Reformed groups, um, and there will be something that goes on in the news, something terrible, right? Um, there will be some kind of shooting or some kind of explosion or some kind of uh, war that's on. And someone will inevitably, especially in those Reformed uh, circles, someone will inevitably put in the Reformed group, uh, well, I guess the post mills gave up today or something like that. Just because uh, there was an explosion, just because there was uh, terrible things and things that we'd all agree are terrible – going on in the world, well, therefore, post-millennialism must not be a viable option. And I'll just bring that to us today to frame us, uh, because that's not why we choose eschatology. That's not why we, we shouldn't choose eschatology, really. We should have a view of the end times based upon what the scripture's view of the end times is. And if things are going on in the world that are evil, that are wrong, um, we don't look at that and say, well, then I guess uh, I was wrong about my view of history. We look at the scriptures and say, does the scripture provide an answer to me as to why those wrong things are happening, as to why those bad things are happening? And I would, I would argue that, that, yes, they do. They do give us a reason to frame what, what's going on in history. And they still give us a trajectory of how history is supposed to go or how things are moving forward. So that's how we're going to approach this. Now, Gentry's book, we're going to be looking at three different chapters here again, and we're going to be in that uh, section that is entitled, after chapter four, entitled Interpretation. Interpretation, or hermeneutic, and that has to do, and I apologize, my book is quite literally falling apart here as I'm trying to read through it, but as we approach the scriptures, we have to understand how we are going to be interpreting those scriptures. Because there is going to be some key differences between the way that we will interpret the scripture and between the ways in which uh, someone of a, a dispensational premillennialist view uh, would approach the scripture. But before we get there, we do have to assert that there is a huge and common uh, similarity between the ways in which we interpret the Bible and the ways in which uh, other views do. And that is what? Do we all uh, view the Bible as the inerrant and the inspired word of God? Is that the way that they view it and we view it? The answer is yes. Yes, of course. We are not denying here that the other views 
have some kind of difference uh, of opinion on whether this is uh, inerrant or inspired. So every single text comes to bear upon our question of uh, the end times because every single text is inspired. It is inerrant um, in the scriptures. So we're not going to uh, say that, oh, well, they look at this, this passage um, as an emphasis because it's more true than others or something like that. No, we're, we're both coming to the text and saying uh, if one passage says th th this way or one passage says it another way, um, then we're going to deal honestly with the text um, and we're going to try to bring that to bear on our eschatology. But this implies that we believe in a God who reveals himself and a God who has given us his word that is prophetic, that is that God, the one who is writing the scriptures, the one who, who gave the scriptures to us through his servants, is also the one who is uh, organizing and preordaining history. That both of these two things are true. That if there are things that he says about the future, they can and will come to pass because he is the one that is playing history out to begin with. It is not as though he looks into a crystal ball and sees what's going to happen. He is making that which happens come to pass. So that is why we can, even as we sit in our time and space in our period of history, we can be confident that even when something terrible, terrible happens in the world, uh, if God said there is reason for hope, then there surely is reason for hope. We don't, uh, we don't let our own uh, situation, our own even small place in history, as far as the thousands of years of history are concerned, uh, dictate the way in which we interpret the text. We let the text then interpret or dictate the way in which we interpret history. And I think if you if you were to corner a, a, a any uh, people who are conservative Orthodox Christians, that is those who who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, they're going to say the exact same thing, right? No one's going to sit here um, as someone who has such a high view of Scripture and tell you that they let history dictate the way in which uh, that they interpret the Bible. But I guess what I'm going to be showing you, especially as we get into these other chapters, because this first chapter and this second is very preliminary, it kind of gives us a basis for how we approach Scripture, is that sometimes, uh, sometimes it's very hard for us to not uh, interpret Scripture in that way, right? Sometimes we see history, we are in history, we are in this time and space, and even if we're not trying to, unfortunately we allow our situations, our, the philosophies of the world in which we live in, uh, of the modern American or modern uh, landscape kind of seep into the way that we view scripture. And so that's going to be some of the arguments here being made as to why, what, what are people in the pre-mill camp missing? What are people in the all-mill camp missing? Sometimes we may argue that, well, they are, they are looking at history and they are seeing the trajectory that they see in their, their lifespan, right? In their 30, 50 years of life or however long they've lived. And they're looking at that trajectory and they're putting that upon the scriptures and they may not be meaning to. We're not trying to say that uh, uh, they're not trying to be faithful to the scriptures. But as humans, that's something that's very hard for us not to do at times. And we have to constantly be checking ourselves as we come to the scriptures, right? And that really gets back to one of the clarion calls of the Reformation, right? Uh, Sempor Reformando, right? We are going to the scriptures and ever reforming to the scriptures. The scriptures were given to us. They are the standard. They do not change, but we men change so often, do we not? And we have to constantly uh, say, as we are being sanctified, uh, we have to ask ourselves, am I really being reformed to the scriptures, or am I trying to reform the scriptures to me? And so often that's a, a, a struggle that we go through. But that's, all that being said, that really kind of is just the preliminaries of that chapter, chapter 5 there. And then we have to then... Do you really dig deep into how do we approach the scriptures? And chapter 6 jumps into perhaps one of my favorite topics to talk about as we approach the scriptures, and that is a very uniquely reformed, uh, maybe not uniquely reformed, but very emphasized in the reformed faith, and that is the idea of covenant. As we interpret the scriptures, as we ask what is it the scriptures are trying to tell us, and what is it, what is the story that is being played out? The idea of covenant is uh, very important for us to really understand at all what is going on in this story. So let me ask, as we start out our discussion this morning, and as we are all waking up still and maybe sipping our coffee, 
uh, but I am too, so no worries. Um, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? It is an agreement of some kind. Mm-hmm. Very true. It is a binding agreement. Yes. Mm-hmm. There is, in one sense, we could say that's all we—that's all the definition we really, really need, right? If we look at the ways in which man makes covenants with his with other men, right? We see this throughout the scripture. Um, there are covenants uh, between, uh, say, for instance, uh, uh, King Abimelech and Isaac, right? Make a covenant together. There are other instances in which men make covenants with men, um, and that would. Really, there wouldn't be much more to define it in that sense, right? Uh, in that kind of covenant, it is merely a binding agreement between two parties, right? Um, but is there maybe something different in a covenant that God makes with man? A covenant that God makes with man. And can we think of any instances in which God makes a covenant with man? Or does he not? He doesn't ever make an agreement a binding agreement with men. <laughs> what is just give me one one person who had a covenantal agreement with God in the scriptures? Abraham, yes. Abraham did. God made a covenant with Abraham. What was this covenant that God made with Abraham? Yeah, exactly. That he would increase his descendants and there, they would fill the earth and there would... Uh, very sounds very similar to something he said all the way back in Genesis to uh, to who? All the way to the very very beginning. Unity promised something very similar. Adam, yeah, he said, "I will." He said, "Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth." There's parallels, and as we see this, this is what uh, Reformed theologians, as they approach the text, as they have a covenantal understanding, is what they would call it. This is one of the big things they are seeing: is these. Parallels as God promises to Adam, He gives him a covenant, and He He promises uh, that He will be with them and He will bless them, and He blesses Adam and Eve, and He says, "Be fruitful and multiply." Well, what does He then say to Noah? He says, "Be fruitful and multiply." And what does He say to Abraham? Though within a context of a particular nation at this point, right? There is something more focused about what He's speaking of, but He's still giving him. The same blessing, he's saying, be fruitful and multiply, and he does. He says, I will give you, I will bless you to the third and the fourth generation, and even unto a thousand generations, he says. Um, and so we're seeing something very, very similar in the way that God makes covenants with his people. He even makes a covenant with creation itself. And if someone could turn with me and read for us, Jeremiah 33 can you read verse 20 and then verse 25? 33, verse 20 and then verse 25. Is this 20, 20, just 20 and 25. Okay. Jeremiah 33, 20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will be no day and night in their season. And then 25. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth. Thank you. Now, of course, there's both of those statements kind of leave you hanging because they're just the front of two different statements. But I showed that to y'all to show that God even makes covenants with the creation order, that we can even speak of the way in which God rules creation and which the way God loves his creation um, as such uh, in a covenantal manner. 
uh, and this theme, this theme of covenant is woven all throughout Scripture, right? Um, you can't get away from it. And this covenant, as we talked about here, um, becomes one of the principles by which we understand both the Old and the New Testaments. And it gives a kind of continuity to the entirety of the Old Testament and then the New Testament. Um, so if we even go, uh, turn with me to Hosea. Hosea 6, 7. Because there are some that would look at the ways in which Genesis 1 through 3 opens up, right? And say, well, I don't see the word covenant ever used, so how can I know that God really made a covenant with Adam, right? The first time the word covenant is used is uh, in Genesis 9, uh, whenever God makes a covenant with Noah. Uh, so then, did God really make a covenant with Adam? Well, Hosea 6, verse 7, gives us the answer to that question. Can someone read Hosea 6, 7? But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly. Very good. Thank you. So we see, yes, indeed God did make a covenant with Adam. And this is referring to that covenant which Adam then transgressed, right? God made a covenant with Adam. And this really brings us to that other uh, aspect of a covenant that is a, an, a, there is an agreement. But in that agreement, there are blessings uh, and there are curses. What, is, what does it mean that there are blessings and curses to the agreement? Well, it's quite simply, God makes a covenant agreement with Adam and he says, follow my law, right? Well, one of those laws, of course, was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he's saying, and then he even gives the curse stipulation, right? He says, and in that day that you do, if you do eat of it, then you will surely die, right? And he's saying there is curses to be found for breaking the covenant, and there are blessings to be found for keeping the covenant. And this is consistent all throughout uh, the scriptures in the way that God has covenant dealings, we might say, the way in which God makes covenants with his people. Um, he does this uh, with, with Abraham, right? He says, if you follow after these, you will have great blessing in the land, and if you depart from them, well, then you will find curses uh, in the land. And this applies all the way through to his descendants, right? We see 400 years later um, what is happening, uh, but his uh, descendants coming back into the promised land, and God makes the very same covenant with them. As he says, if you do well, if you choose life, as, as Moses says at the end of Deuteronomy, then you will uh, find great blessing in the promised land. It will be fertile for you. You will have great uh, farms and agriculture, you will have great cities, you will be prosperous, um, and all of these things will be true, but if you transgress the covenant, if you break the covenant, if you do not follow my law, if you start to uh, worship other idols, well then, uh, he, used very, he uses very uh, imagery-based language, he says the, the land will what? The land will vomit you out, um, essentially, and that's exactly what happens, right? Uh, Israel does break the covenant, and what does God do? He sends them into exile. They are no longer in the land. And so we see this again and again. These covenants seem to unfold naturally before us as we get uh, covenant after covenant after covenant. They do not seem to contradict the one before. They seem to provide further clarity to the one before as they affirm what was already said and then give us even a, another little bitty glimpse of something that's coming ahead. So we see... God promising uh, descendants to Adam. And then we see God promising descendants to Noah, but then also protection, that he's not going to flood the earth anymore. Then he promises descendants to Abraham, he promises him protection, and then he also promises him a land. And we start to get more and more specific. We're getting more and more focused. There's something that's in view, and the focus is getting a little bit more clearer each time, and each time there is a continuity in going forward. And this is how... Uh, reformed people have traditionally approached the scripture. This is how we understand the scripture. These covenants seem to be such a huge part of the way in which God deals with his people. How could we not but use them in our interpretation of scripture, what it's pointing to, what's going on in the story. But that is not the only way in which people have approached the scripture. And Gentry then goes into the opposing viewpoint. Covenantalism is the Reformed interpretation, or we might call it the Reformed hermeneutic, to use a fancy Latin phrase, 
that the way in which we interpret or the lens by which we see the Bible. But if we use covenants, if we are covenantal, what is the opposite view of that in interpreting the scripture? We've already used that word in this class. Dispensationalism. Dispensationalism. So what is that? This is a fancy term. Um, what is what is a dispensation? We know what a covenant is, but what's a dispensation? Mm-hmm. It's, that's all, all it is. Very, very simply, it is just a, a period of time. But they have something a little bit more focused they want to talk about when they, they say a dispensation, right? It's not just any random dispensation of time. There are things to their mind that divide up these scriptures into particular dispensations. Um, and different dispensationalists give you different answers to that, right? Some say there's seven dispensations. Some say there's eight. Some say there's four. There's different kind of grids by which they can look at uh, the Bible here. Um, but it's not, they're not looking, they will use covenants. They, they acknowledge there are covenants in the Bible, right? Um, but they do not use those in the same manner that we do. They do not, sometimes they will use a covenant as a marker for when a dispensation begins or ends. Um, sometimes they won't. Um, and so it just depends upon uh, the different interpreter, the different theologian that you're looking at. And so this is very made very popular by uh, people like uh, Schofield and Ryrie and uh, Walvert are some big names uh, in uh, the current day and age or in uh, recent past uh, that have given us this grid by which they look at the scripture, right? They, they basically have kind of almost taken, uh, to, to not be too crude in the analogy, they almost taken scissors to the Bible, right? And they say, this part has to be this section, this part has to be this section, and then in those dispensations, what really begins to make the the Reformed theologians be on guard against this as they say, and God worked in this way in this dis- dispensation, and he worked in this way in this dispensation. And that is where we're going to see a key uh, issue or problem between the way the covenantalist re- uh, approaches the scripture and the way the dispensationalist uh, refor- or comes to the scripture. Uh, there's a, a, uh, a big disconnect here and uh, something that we can't, can't get past uh, in that approach. Because to the Reformed, God works in a single way with his people. Now, there are differences in history, right? Not all history looks exactly the same, but God has always, and this is the big one, God has always saved his people in one way. God has always saved his people in one way, and that is by the work of in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam was saved this way. Noah was saved this way. Moses was saved this way. Even though Jesus Christ had not yet come in the flesh, he is the one on whom they had placed their hope as they were looking forward, just as we place our hope in him as we look back to when he was on this earth, lived a perfectly righteous life, and then died a horrific death on our behalf, and then was raised from the dead. This is the mechanism that God uses, the person in whom God placed all authority and power, as he was the one who saved his people from time beginning to time end. And so there is a covenantal unity, where the dispensationalist is... In many respects, they begin to say, no, God, God saved people in this way here, and God saved people in this way here. And they'll, different dispensationalists will give you different answers as to how all that works together. Um, but they will say things like Adam is in the dispensation of innocency, or there is, some will even stretch that out even before, any time, before Abraham at all, we are in the dispensation of innocency in that there isn't a a law that's written out like there was for Abraham or for Moses, and so God must be saving in some kind of different mechanism or different way, um, and there's something different going on. Uh, whereas the Reformed theologian goes right back to Genesis 3.15 and says, well, wait, no. There was always one, one mechanism. There was a head crusher to come and kill the serpent. And that's always been what God's people have always been looking to. And those that, those that are not, not those that are, are trusting in something else to save them, that are looking for something different, well, those are not 
those are not really those that are saved, right? God, does, God, when he saves people, just as he saves people in the New Testament and the, the Spirit enters into them and they have a new desire, the scales fall from their eyes and they see the Scriptures in a new light, they see it for what it is that it points toward Christ, so too were those people in that day as they would have if they truly were regenerate, they would say, yes, I'm looking to toward that one to come and crush the serpent's head. I'm looking toward that son to sit the, the throne of David forever and ever. Um, and so this is that big difference here as we speak through covenantalism and uh, dispensationalism. And because these covenants then give a narrative direction to Scripture— they will affect the way in which we look at our third chapter for today. Because if we're looking at the scripture through covenant, if we're seeing that everything is going toward a particular point, that there is a narratival direction, a story being written, not just a series of events, not just an account of history, there is a story. And that where that story is going, well, then that means that's going to color the way in which we view prophecy. Because if God is writing a story, well, then the prophecies will point towards something, and then that will be in consonance, right? That will, that will be in harmony with the way in which the covenants work together, right? The pro- prophecies and the covenants will work together in a seamless, uh, harmonious way. And this is then why, when the dispensationalists come to prophecy, and when the covenantalist comes to prophecy, he's going to see different outcomes, different fulfillments. And this really starts to set us apart. The dispensational, their argument, their their proof for why they think that they what they see in the prophecies, especially those Old Testament prophecies as it relates to Israel, Israel as a physical racial nation as it exists today, why they connect it there their first big defense is that they view the prophecies literally. They say, well, we we come to the text. We are not liberal like you are. That's maybe one of their weaker arguments and maybe one of their more name-calling arguments is that you are liberal. You you come to the text and you don't take it literally. Well, I, I'm, I'm conservative. We, we take it literally when we come to the prophecies. It said Israel. Israel means Israel. It, yeah, that's, that's what they will – that's their, their approach uh, to these. One of the first arguments that should be your reply, if you're, if you're looking and you're saying, oh, well, I, I, I come to the text, I try to be faithful, I want to interpret it as those writers meant for it to be interpreted, but you should say, we don't, no one takes everything literally in the scripture, because sometimes door doesn't mean door, because Christ is not door literally. He is that door upon which when you knock and ask, he will be answered, right? He is that way by which we make it into heaven. For those who seek God, Christ is the door, of course. But that's not literal. He is human. He is God. He is not a door. And so, and of course, even taking taking that a step further, dispensationalists, dispensationalism and Roman Catholicism do not go together. And yet... Uh, if they were being literal, would they not take a literalist approach to the Lord's Supper, right? The, the Catholic says it is literally the body and blood of Christ. But, but Protestants don't say that, and yet the dispensationalists say, oh, we're taking everything so literally, and you're not. Well, then say, oh, well, then that must really be the body and blood of, of Christ, right? So really, if you really come to the text, no one really is taking every single thing Literally, And really this flies right in the face of the way that Christ spoke of the prophecies because the rabbinical or the pharisaical teaching of his day was a very literal, well, there is a kingdom to come. There is a Messiah, a Savior who is coming to usher in that kingdom and a literal kingdom must destroy the kingdom of Rome. It is, if it's literal, if what this is speaking of is literal, then that is why they looked at Christ and said, you can't have been the Messiah because you are not literally writing in 
on a white steed with great processions and armies following behind you. And that's, that's what those prophecies were talking about, right? A literal kingdom implies all of that, but you're coming in on colts. You're coming in with masses of people that are here just to hear your gospel, your message, but, but not, a, not a, an army. This isn't a real kingdom. There's no real crown upon your head. You're not sitting in a real throne. And so the rabbis and the Pharisees said, no, we take it literally, and Christ doesn't meet up to our version of what they would say the literal interpretation of those prophecies were. And so, so that is what Gentry's kind of pushback is. He says, actually, if you take it literally, like what you're saying, well, then you're actually falling more in line with the way that the rabbis and those of the, the first century Jews would have taken it, and that was their misstep. That's what, what Christ uh, accused them of. He said, no, I've not come uh, to bring this political, uh, usher in this political kingdom and take over Rome like you think. I've come in with a spiritual kingdom, and yes, as we'll talk about later, that spiritual kingdom did do great damage to the empire of Rome in a different way, but not the way in which uh, the Pharisees and the Jews thought it was. They thought that Israel would become its own independent nation again with a great king to then need to charge against uh, the empire of Rome. And so, so then how then do we view history? This is when Gentry then brings into view um, something that then goes against maybe some of our other opponents, and that is this notion in a fancy term called preterism. Preterism, and we're going to introduce this now and speak of it later. Preterism is a very uh, simply, quite simply, it is the notion that much of prophecies that are traditionally thought to be speaking of something after the New Testament has already been fulfilled in history. And this is not the notion that all of it has been fulfilled, but I want to take us to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and see why, why some people may think this and why we may, why Gentry might think this. Can someone read Revelation 1 1? Thank you. And they can someone read all the way at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, verse 6. see what is there are many parallels between those two verses and these are kind of act almost as capstones for the for the book itself to give a purpose and a theme behind what John is seeing but will these things happen in a time distant to us so what you're saying is soon doesn't mean 2,000 years from when they wrote that probably not not all of it at least right that's what we're going to talk about we're not going to dive into all the particulars now but, yes, that's exactly what is being asserted. He's saying soon. We might say to some people that look at this and say, well, maybe soon means soon. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> this is, and this, of course, we, we say that tongue-in-cheek, right? We, we try to be faithful to the text. If it seems to be presenting an image or a metaphor, we should try to understand what that image or metaphor is getting at. But if it seems to be presenting something plain and something... Uh, literal, to use that phrase, we should interpret it literally as well, right? We don't want to impose one or the other upon the text. We want to try to understand what is the text getting at here. And this kind of taps through Revelation as Revelation really tells the story of, it's really showing hope to Christians 
who are living in this day. And as we go forward in Gentry's book, he's going to try to prove to us, and I, I believe uh, uh, ably so, that this is giving hope to a persecuted church, a church that is being persecuted by two particular people groups, and God is giving hope to them by saying, no punishment will come to these peoples who are persecuting you. And who might those two people groups be? In the early days of the church, who was persecuting the Christians? The Jews and the Romans. The Jews and the Romans. And so when we see, uh, and this seems to be uh, very consonant with the reading of it, as it speaks of a beast who is somewhere across the sea. Well, that makes sense. If you're in Israel, where is Rome? But it is across the sea. And it speaks of a beast coming, uh, or a, a, a menace coming from where they were. So there seems to be a connection here. Then there seems, of course, the one of the big themes here, of course, too, is in, in Matthew 24, we have the Olivet Discourse, and, and Jesus literally says as he's going up to the temple that, I tell you, not one stone will, will uh, be placed upon another. It will be completely destroyed, meaning he has to speak of that time. Now, we also know there seems to be a double meaning here as well, that he's speaking of his own body, and he says it will be raised up on the third day, but we do also see that there is a prophecy of the temple being destroyed, and I happen to think that temple means temple there, and that then the temple is destroyed about 40 years later in the year AD 70, as the emperor Trajan is forced to send Hadrian to destroy the Jews after a great rebellion. Um, and so we see, as Jesus even says, that he's coming back on, on clouds, right? That is, that is a, a theme that's all throughout the Old Testament that speaks of judgment. It speaks of God delivering his judgment upon people who are sinners and rebellious against him. And so this notion of preterism is the idea that Israel, in its time as a nation-state, as, as the people of God and the nation-state being one and the same, that time is coming to some kind of close um, because of many different things. One, that when we look at the gospel accounts, one because of the way in which the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel had corrupted the religion almost entirely, right? They had come up with their own traditions to such an extent that no one could any longer uh, really interpret rightly the laws, right? The laws were not being interpreted rightly by the Pharisees nor the Sadducees. The Sadducees had gone almost completely liberal and spiritualized almost every text. The Pharisees who were claiming the literal approach were also literally using other texts instead to give content to the laws. Instead of saying uh, what Moses said, they had text upon text upon text as they had written all of this stuff down and said, well, you can actually, it says that, that you should honor your father and mother. Well, you can actually dishonor them by doing this and doing this and doing this. If you if you devote your life to temple, well, then you can, you can neglect your father and your mother, and you can let them die in poverty and never care for them, um, because you're doing this thing, and this is, this is tradition, don't worry, it's been passed down for hundreds of years, or thousands of years, or whatever it might be, and therefore, it's okay. And Jesus calls them out for that, right? He, he shows how far corrupted the, uh, the religious section of, of Israel had become at this point, and they were leading the people astray. And so this this then gives into the, the way the covenantal perspective of understanding what's happening there in those first few centuries of the church is not a cult that's breaking off from Judaism and then Judaism just keeps going the way that it always had. No, it is the people of God coming into contact with the Messiah, with Christ. Some of them accept him and they fall to their knees and they follow him. Some of them do not. And those are those those men become what is later called Judaism. That is a religion that is forged even after a temple is gone. And so it's most certainly not the same religion as that religion was contingent upon sacrificial systems and going to a temple yearly. But it is forged <laughs> in polemic against Christianity. And we see this to be the case all throughout the early church fathers. As what are they writing against? Time and time again, they will offer polemic against paganism and Romanism, uh, or Romanism at that time, not Romanism as in Roman Catholicism. Um, but they seem to, in the early days, be more concerned about 
attacking the Jewish position, and you can see the Jewish position evolving into something different. And so really we see in that first century, Christ the Messiah comes, and two religions come out of it, one uh, claiming that he is the Messiah, and one asserting that he most certainly is not. And neither is the religion of before the Messiah came to it. And so that is really what we're seeing here. Whereas the dispensationalist is going to try very hard to say, no, Jew Judaism is the same as it's gone out all throughout this time. And because of the way that dispensations work, that God works in different times, that we get to when Christ comes, and Christ is here to present his kingdom, this kingdom that's been promised, and the Jews reject him. And because they rejected him, that kingdom didn't happen. And then God kind of uses the church to form jealousy in the hearts of the Jews who are still existing and still worshiping the same way they always did. And, and then maybe in that jealousy, they'll see the king for who he is, and then they'll accept him, and then God can usher in the kingdom. This, this is, you can see why this has to make this premillennial idea out of it, because then Christ comes back, and then he can have the kingdom that was promised all along. It's almost as if to say, if the Jews had done what God wanted them to do, then the kingdom would have come then. But they didn't, therefore it will happen later. We're in a delay, as if God was kind of blindsided. He thought that he was going to enter into his kingdom, and then he didn't. Whereas our position is going to be, no, he did enter into his kingdom. And the kingdom is happening now. He is reigning, he is ruling. Because what did Christ say? As soon as he has entered up into heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There is a, an unfolding, and this is something that has been uh, being alluded to throughout the Old Testament as it's looking forward and it's calling more and more prophets seem to not only call Israel to repentance, but they look at other nations and they speak of Israel as being an example as showing the other nations what does it look like to follow the law of the holy God? What's it look like to worship the triune God of creation? Come here and you will see. And that was the point the whole time. God is not blindsided. If God is the one writing a story, there is an end. And he's written the beginning from the end. And so if things seem to be going, as I would argue, in that hopeful direction, as these covenants give hope, to everyone who is given a covenant, everyone who God directly speaks with and makes a covenant with, there is hope to it. There is warning to it. Do not be like these people, or lest you may be cursed, right? There is always hope. And God is promising, I will be with you even unto a thousand generations. As Christ then puts a cap on it, he says, even unto the end of the age. So when does that what is that thousand generations that Abraham has promised? It is to the end of this age, to the end of this time, when we, now Abraham seed, as Romans clearly says, we are grafted into the covenant, as Romans 4 says, that then God will bring in all his elect, and that is the end of those thousand generations. So I tried to really... <coughs> Cut this so that we have some time for questions, and now we do. We have 13 minutes for questions, which is an improvement from last time. So I will open the floor. Caleb, are you going to talk more about 70 AD? Is that just a, a little bit, yeah. This was just kind of a, this was a, a preview, yeah. Okay. And I know the book talks more about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to address something real quick. Just kind of get out the front of it. There's a, as we talk about 70 AD and its significance, it's important to understand the difference between what Paul refers to as preterism and hyperpreterism. Yes. And the two distinct the differences between those two and where we fall and why it's important. Uh, there are false accusations against general Reformed Presbyterians. I mean, all mills, post mills alike, yeah. Seventy AD was a significant time frame. 
significance of uh, signifying that the church is Israel, that we are the people of God. And there's a there's more to it. Gail's going to cover that. But I want to touch on what our OPC says in defense of the OPC and the fact that we're not hyper-preterist. Because the hyper-preterist, preterism says that was a significant point of history. Right. I mean, it has, it has some... Some point of fulfillment to prophecy. Yeah. Over. But hyperpreterism teaches that Christ already came and returned during that time, and he's already been here, right? Right, but it's and so it's over. There is no more. I just want to read a short paragraph. This is straight from the OPC Q and A. You can read on preterism, and it says, "By hyperpreterism, I understand you to be referring to the belief that." The totality of the eschatological events, in particular the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, will fulfill the events of 780. Hyper is distinguished from what is sometimes called partial or moderate preterism, which says that many biblical prophecies have been fulfilled. An example is the Great Tribulation of Matthew 24. But the second coming and final resurrection are still future. Hyper often argue. Their view is required by a commitment to biblical authority appealing to New Testament passages that seem to predict the imminent return of Christ after his resurrection from the dead. Yes, AD 70 does represent a significant date, and it does denote a replacing of the old Jewish ordinances with the New Testament gospel. Um, and there is a sense of which it can be said that Christ did come or did return. that the judgment that befall the Jews in AD 70 falls far short of the judgment of the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike, of which the New Testament speaks, and to which we testify in our creeds. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to clarify that. And our denomination takes a stand on that. Read more about it. Mm-hmm. it is pretty... I mean, I'll... I'll all Christians who really hold to a serious Orthodox conservative view of the scriptures and take them seriously have to hold that Christ is returning. There is, and that's that's been the case since the church began. Right, future. This is this is why the Apostles' Creed, right from the very beginning, after 70 AD, what is the church continually saying? And I believe he is returning to judge the quick and the dead, right? He is returning. There is a future event um, in which Christ is coming back. So yes, do not hear me or anyone else here saying that Christ has returned, and he will never return again. He is going to return, uh, and that is what we're speaking of in this class. Any other questions? Y'all are quiet this morning. <laughs> How do the... You touched on a little bit, but when you touched on the scriptures of Revelation, Mm-hmm. refer to soon, mm-hmm. very soon. Mm-hmm. Even if we go, we go to Daniel, mm-hmm. we can go to Isaiah, and it's all, you know, it's referring, in the Old Testament, referring to a future time, but then in the New Testament, they're all saying very soon, very soon. Right. How do dispensationalists spin that to mean 2,000 years? I think I know the answer. They do it every day. Yes, they seem to be. Um, I think a lot of them would would kind of go back to what a lot of people go back to whenever time becomes an issue um, in the way that we interpret Scripture uh, is that, oh, well, to God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, which most of the time when people quote that, you should hear them saying, well, I would like to interpret this as literal and this is non-literal and this doesn't mean a day, but this does mean a day. And, I, and, and as long as I can quote that verse to you, then I'm comfortable uh, saying uh, whichever I can uh, or whatever, whichever I would like. Um, I think we should be more careful than that. Uh, if, it, if it seems to be indicating soon, we should ask, why does he say soon? Um, and I'll to make a side note on that, right, in the same way that I don't think you can just quote that verse and then tell me that a day is an age in Genesis 1, right? That's a very uh, 
it's a very uh, open-ended way to just approach a text like that. We have to ask, okay, what does he really mean? Just because, yes, it is true that God is timeless, that he is atemporal, um, that to him, yes, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That doesn't mean that he doesn't then use the text to communicate something true to us that we can use. So um, I think we just have to be careful and, and ask what is the author really getting at. So there are kind of two different takes on, on that, really. Um, there is a, a significant portion. I mean, we even go back to uh, Charles Hodge or people even close in history that believe that, uh, who are post-millennial, and believe that the millennium that is being spoken of, um, and we'll kind of touch on this, uh, is something of more of a, a golden age that we are building toward. And in that golden age, the Jews will finally, a lot of the Jews... I mean, the majority of the Jews uh, will, will be enlightened to the error of their ways and they will repent um, and, uh, and that that's what the church is building toward uh, and then there are those to take it more a more spiritualizing way that there is that there were Jews that were converted even at that time right because of Gentiles and the way that they were uh, being converted uh, in mass at the time um, and or that there is really more of what's being gotten at is uh, that that Israel is is the church, and that as the the fullness of the Jews is brought in, what is that? Is that really is that speaking more to the church? And I think there are, so there are those kind of ways of and, and fills unless there's a another way that is that I'm missing here because I might be um, no okay no I mean pastors would be like easy boy. <laughs> <laughs> Hodge being the north, that would be, yeah, same time period. That um, would say who is a Jew. Who is a Jew? All the records were burned up in 70 AD. Who has the right to call them that? Who is an ethnic Israelite? And he's writing this in the I'm not doing this to confuse everybody. But There would be a, yeah. 
That is a very good point to, to bring in when you look at ancient church fathers, right? Eusebius, Augustine, they're all going to speak of Old Testament Christians and New Testament Christians. When Old Testament church and New Testament church, there's a continuity there. Um, so, yeah. For the record, my views are not So. <laughs> Did you really want to say something? Yeah, well, yeah. I, no, I think that, um, and actually in, in line with what Bill said, uh, I think that as you look at the text of Roman 11, what is the key focus? It's on, as it is throughout scripture, it's on the elect, right? Mm-hmm. It's on the bringing in of the elect from every nation, right? So, um, yes, and so would the elect of Paul's countrymen, right, will they be brought in to the church? Absolutely, they will, mm-hmm. right? Through the preaching of the gospel, and that, you know, that's that is no different, you know, across time, right? right. Are all of the elect of, of his countrymen or descendants thereof have they all been brought in yet? We don't know because we don't know who the elect are. Right. God does, and so, but we know that the fullness of His church will be brought in right. through the preaching of the gospel before you come. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, I agree with Bill in that. In that um, can we say, does the Lord know who those people are? Absolutely, He does. And will they be brought in? Yes, they will. Right. Yeah. Um, are all is is every uh, person from that nation elect? No. How do we know that to be true? Because we've seen that already in history past. Mm-hmm. In those in, in the scriptures. Right. In, in those. Yeah. But also, wanted to say, too, you made a comment about um, kind of the blessings of the covenant heads, right? That God's covenant with them was a great blessing to them. I think it's also very encouraging for us as Christians throughout the generations, to God's people throughout the generations, to not only understand the blessing that the covenant was, that those covenants were when God gave it to those men, but, but also, you know, as then the, the recipients of the blessings mm-hmm. of the covenant, you know, and, and as we are in the, as we are recipients of the blessing of the covenant of grace, as we are recipients of uh, uh, and partakers of that, you know, it's of great encouragement to us to see God's work, you know, uh, in and through those, you know, even today. That's the beauty of yeah covenant in the way that God covenants with people and blesses their descendants and blesses those within a covenant through a covenant head. As something that, yeah, has been understood even throughout recent history for a long time, even with the, the, the Scots looking at themselves being covenanted. Even uh, early in America's history, the reason why we use words like federal, even in our government, because of early understandings of this. Um, yeah, God blesses peoples. He blesses persons and he blesses peoples. Um, and we should not uh, neglect that. And it's great Greatly encouraging for us. All right. Well, Ty, would you like to pray for us as we conclude our time together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings and thank you for the church. Uh, we thank you for Caleb and Curtis and uh, this class. And we pray that you would strengthen 